You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. This will be a little different theme, a little different mood than the last one. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, welcome to SpyCast, a live recording. I guess that's somewhat uh, oxymoronic, but live recording of SpyCast here at Politicon uh, in Pasadena, California. Uh, I am Vince Houghton. I'm the historian and curator of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. And with me is John Ronson, who is a Welsh journalist, author, filmmaker, and radio producer. His work has appeared in The Guardian, Time Out, GQ, and many others. He has made several documentary films for BBC, two serial series for Channel 4 in the United Kingdom, and he's the author of nine books, most notably Them, Adventures with Extremists, The Psychopath Test, A Journey Through the Madness Industry, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and of course, The Men Who Stare at Goats. Now, if you've seen the movie and haven't read the book of The Men Who Stare at Goats and you like the movie a lot, you'll love the book. It takes it to a whole nother level. If you didn't like the movie, you'll still love the book. All right, it has a very different feel to it than that's, the movie did. That's the joy of being an author of a book that gets turned into a movie. Like, you can't lose. One way or people another, like the movie, go, right? that everyone credits the book, and if people hate the movie, they ruin that wonderful book. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. You know, in the world of intelligence, it's rare there's a good movie based on, on intelligence world. So it's, it, whenever you have anything that's even remotely entertaining, it's great to see. Thank you. I, I really liked the movie of the Ministeric Goats, um, but I do recognize that some don't. Yeah. So the, I was really excited when they put us together, the great people at Politicon, because I heard a lot of your podcasts and some of the stuff that you've done uh, from the UK, and you've said on several occasions 
that you felt you would make a really good spy and be part of your journalistic background watching people? Yeah, j- journalism, I mean, that's the, the part I love most about journalism is like being on, a, being on an adventure and, 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 you know, watching people and, and, you know, trying to solve mysteries. Um, Either a spy or Scooby-Doo, it's one or the other. Yeah, right? I feel like a bit of a spy. I was on a porn shoot yesterday yeah. in, um, uh, uh, close to here, like, like, 30, <laughs> like 30 minutes in, a, in an Uber from here. Uh, and yeah, I felt very much like a spy. I was just, just sitting there watching. And then I thought, fuck, maybe I'm not a spy, maybe I'm like a voyeur. Um, so that's what journalism is as There's well. There's a fine line between spy yeah. and voyeur, yeah. But my, I mean, my favorite part about journalism is, is, is mystery solving. Like, there's something that I don't understand and I want to try and understand it. I think that's the thing that, that leads me to kind of all the, all the projects that you talked about. So, you know, in the psychopath test, it was like, you know, all these eminent psychiatrists and psychologists believe that psychopaths rule the world. Um, and, and when you think about it, that's like a huge thought. And right. could I somehow try and solve that mystery? Is it true? And then I, and I thought, well, maybe I can go on a psychopath spotting course and then journey into the corridors of power to try and meet psychopaths. I mean, and then in them, it's like, is it true that, that there's a powerful secret cabal secretly ruling the world? And is there a way of solving that mystery? Can I kind of sneak into the... Is there? Uh, <laughs> in, in a, yeah, in a way. Um, <laughs> And so I ended up sneaking into Bohemian Grove with Alex Jones to try and solve that mystery and getting chased by the Bilderberg Group. And, and in the new book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, I guess it's about, you know, what's happened to us that we act in this very different way on social media. We do the things to other people that were most terrified would happen to us and try and solve that mystery. So, so yeah, yeah, it's mystery solving. I just, I just made the, the stupid mistake of reading the comments section on something that I was in online, and I was like, who says this stuff? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> one thing that you, you didn't uh, mention, actually, that I think that really does qualify you in some respects for the intelligence world in reading The Men Who Stare at Goats is that you get people to tell you things that they probably shouldn't. And that's really kind of the key focus behind doing human intelligence is convincing somebody that to give you information that it goes against their self-interest. And that's, mm. that's throughout your book is these people yeah. who just you, you know, just stick around and you convince them and you talk them into including you in their world. Yes. I mean, it took a, while, it took a long time uh, to, to make that happen. It was, it was a hard process. Um, for people who don't know, I actually explained so the Men of State Goats is, a, is we, we discovered, me and a producer called John Sargent, uh, discovered that there was a, a secret unit of psychic spies um, who weren't just remote viewing. Remote viewing was already out there as a thing. People already knew that there were these psychic spies that were sitting in a room in Fort Meade, Maryland, trying to be psychic, which sounds incredibly exciting, a secret unit of black op psychic spies. But then when you met them, you realize it was like a nightmare because they were black up, which meant they had no coffee right. budget. So they had to bring their own coffee into work. And after like 20 years, they, they really started to resent that. Uh, and, and they couldn't get any kind of work done on their building uh, because they were black ops so they didn't exist. And it was just a nightmare. And basically, what is psychic spying? What is it really? It's sitting in a room trying to be psychic, like sketching shit down on a piece of paper for like 20 years. It's, it was a nightmare. So they were all like embittered and they all kind of hated each other and they all got really excited when one of them psychically divined. They couldn't open a, 
they couldn't open a door, like, like, like a door had been painted closed, um, and they couldn't get it open, and it was really hot, and they had no air conditioning, so they were, like, desperate to, like, kind of open the door. And um, one of them, Joe McMonagall, psychically divined uh, what the key would look like to open the door. And everyone was so happy that they'd finally definitely done something psychic. And they kept on saying to me, ah, oh, Joe McMonagall, could he psychically divined what the key would look like. And then I went to see Joe McMonagall and I said, is it true? Did, did you do this? And he said, no, well, actually, um, what I did was I, I, I just kind of um, got some plasticine and put it in the lock and then took it to a locksmith. <laughs> and he worked it out. Uh, so even that. But then what we discovered, it's like that, when all that came out in the mid-90s, um, everyone was so excited. They didn't do what I, just by incredible luck, I think this is like, the most, um, just the, the best question I ever asked somebody. So I was interviewing this um, guy called Ray Hyman, who's a skeptic, a, a sort of leading member of the skeptic community. And, and Ray Hyman was tasked to, to judge these psychic spies by the CIA. They wanted to close down this unit because it was costing too much money. Uh, so they asked Ray Hyman to kind of... Um, um, what's the word when, when a psychologist goes in and... Psychoanalyze? You, yeah, or, or just sort of, I don't know, just sort of yeah. write a report on them, knowing that he'd say it's all nonsense because he's a skeptic and he doesn't believe in that shit. So, and that's exactly what happened. So when I was with Ray Hyman, um, I said, yeah, by the way, when you were in there, um, was there anything else going on? And he said, yeah. And he sort of tried to remember. He said, yeah, there was a... There was a guy called Stubblebine, a general called General Stubblebine, who thought that he could burst clouds just by pointing at them. And there was a colonel called Jim Channon, who was training his soldiers to only eat nuts and grains for a month. And then suddenly, and that's all he could remember, and then suddenly had these two names, Stubblebine right. and Channon, so we found them. And it turned out that Stubblebine wasn't just trying to burst clouds. This was a guy with 16,000 soldiers under his command. And he wasn't only trying to burst clouds, he also thought that he could walk through his wall. He was training to walk through his wall. Because what is the atom mostly made up of, he said to me, space. And what is, what is the wall mostly made up of? Atoms. I mean, to me, the key word in this is mostly. Um, but he thought, we can merge the spaces. You know, if I just sort of train hard enough, I can merge the spaces. So he'd get up from behind his desk at Arlington, and he'd kind of break into it and just sort of bang him, just hit his nose on the wall and fall over. And he said to me that luckily he was going through a bad, a bad divorce at the time. So, like, if his nose was bruised, people would put it down to, like, kind of domestic, <laughs> domestic abuse. And then it turned out that Jim Channon was doing this incredible amount of stuff like he he, he he was involved in units that were trying to um, um, well at one point am I talking to no, you? No go for it. Okay at one point he was training his soldiers um, to go into combat armed with baby lambs and then with sparkly, sparkly eyes, eyes yeah with yeah. sparkly eyes he would give uh, the enemy an automatic hug and if that wasn't enough to pacify the enemy, like in some crazy world where that wasn't enough to win the war, uh, they, could, they could blast discordant music at the enemy, like acid rock music out of sync. And if that wasn't enough, uh, you'd be allowed to kill them, because he was a pragmatist. Uh, <laughs> and, and then we discovered that there was this other secret unit that was connected where they were training to kill goats just by staring at them. 
Um, and all of that just came from asking. I, I was, uh, this was the luckiest question I, I ever asked somebody, which was, was there anything else going on? Well, I mean, this is coming out of Vietnam. This is a time when the U.S. Army is not in good shape. Uh, and this is a time when you have the countercultural movement coming out of the 1960s. And all that kind of came together in yeah. a very... You had an army that was very traumatized from the war, that was looking for a way to move forward, mm. and so very much open to some of these ideas. Just Stubblebine went to, you know, he went to the West Point. He, he wasn't just some guy who went to Berkeley, no offense. You know, yeah. he, he has an electrical engineering master's degree, a chemical West engineering Point. master's degree from Cornell. Right. Right? And so this is a very educated person. This is not just some flower power guy who's running around. And, and the fact that he had these ideas, I think, was due to the times in many respects. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And, and uh, the same with Jim Shannon. I mean, he, um, he said to me, I think his moment of kind of revelation was that um, his soldiers were kind of terrible. Like they'd all, they'd all automatically fire high, missing the enemy, because, you know, the only people who actually want to shoot straight are psychopaths, so, um, <laughs> so they'd shoot high, and it was just chaos and disaster, and then he, he asked for permission to go on a fact-finding mission um, to teach the army cunning. He wanted to teach the army cunning, so they sent him off and paid him to go on this mission, and I think the first place he went to was Esalen, the Esalen Institute for the Advancement of Human Potential. Sat in the hot tubs at Esalen. The uh, naked hot tubs. The I naked believe. hot yeah, tubs. Yeah. I've been banned from Esalen. <laughs> um, I would love to go to Esalen just as a, somebody who enjoys naked hot tubs, and I've been banned. Esalen won't let me in. Um, and then, yeah, so then he sort of came up with all these ideas, and you know, the military was traumatized post Vietnam, and they embraced it. It was extraordinary. And, and they actually gave, they said to Chanon, do you want an actual unit? where you can teach people to do this stuff. And Challen said no, because he kind of knew that it wasn't going to work. It was all kind of bullshit. And, but he thought if it, if it was just a kind of idea that would float with, you know, and sort of embed itself within the military, then um, perhaps... I think he said at one point, you know, if you reach for the impossible... Challen really was a pragmatist. If you reach for the impossible, if you try and kill goats just by staring at them, then maybe on the way to that you'll find something real and practical. Well, isn't he the one that came up with the all-time famous motto for the army, or is that somebody else? The be all you can be? It was somebody, I believe it was a man called Frank Burns, uh, and I bet he was like a fan of Channon's, yeah. um, who was sort of inspired by, you know, by this new way of thinking that Channon gave to the army. And yeah, one real thing that came out of it was the slogan, be all that you can be. Um, the goat staring, I, I, I ended up meeting the chief goat stirrer. Uh, it was a man called uh, Guy Savelli. He, and nowadays he runs a dance and martial arts uh, studio in Kirtland, Ohio, which is just near Cleveland. And uh, I phoned him up and I said, um, is it true that you once killed a goat just by staring at it? And he kind of went, oh, yeah. And I said, I don't suppose you still practice the technique. <laughs> and he said, well, as a matter of fact, only last week I killed my hamster just by staring at it. And he said he had it on video, and I could come and see the video if I wanted. So I flew to Kirtland, and he shows me this video of the hamster <laughs> running around. And it's, if you don't believe this stuff, I, I, it's actually, I, I mean, I've got film of this. Uh, it's all on YouTube. Um, 
there's a video of the hamster like running and running because now I'm just off I'm just off camera and I'm staring and I'm staring and I'm staring at the hamster and then and, and it's down and the hamster just kind of like, kind of just goes goes <laughs> just kind of, and I'm going fuck <laughs> uh, and then the hamster gets up and starts eating and then the video ends and I said guy the hamster didn't seem to die. And he goes, yeah, yeah, my wife said, uh, don't show him the part where the hamster actually dies in case he's like a liberal. <laughs> You're an undercover PETA officer going in there to... Yeah, PETA. And I, uh, they, um, at one point, his, his, his son was filming me and like, the whole time I was there. And finally they admitted that they were worried that I might be Al-Qaeda. Like, when I phoned up, they word I might be Al-Qaeda. This was just after 9-11. This was, like, 2003, I think it was. And I think I've, I've, I've identified the moment when they knew that I wasn't Al-Qaeda. And it was when I found out that Guy Savelli's daughter was in Chicago. He, she was one of the dancers in the movie of Chicago. And I kind of went, oh, I just, I love Catherine Zeta-Jones. And they all kind of, and I think they all sort of thought, you know, even a deep-level <laughs> Al-Qaeda operative wouldn't think to be that effeminate. <laughs> well, you brought up a lot of interesting points when it comes to psychosis and like what it makes uh, to, to be effective spying. Do you have to be a little off to be a spy? I mean, these, these characters in this book, I mean, they're all real-life characters. I mean, you're lying for a living. You have a bit of a split personality because you're pretending that you're someone you're not. You're doing some things that are really kind of stupid dangerous in some cases. Yeah. Have you found in talking, you talked to a lot of military intelligence personnel, that you have to be a little bit strange? Now, realize, before you answer, realize that our, our listenership is, is about 50% spies. So, yeah. so go ahead and answer that question because they all know John Ronson. He, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, the people I met in the Manistate Goats were kind of fabulously eccentric and, and delightful and charming. Later on, I met this guy, and I honestly can't remember his name. I never tell this story, but let, let me tell this story. This was a British guy who was working for the KGB. He was called a, uh, a Romeo spy working for the KGB. Uh, so, like, in his younger days, I mean, by the time I met him, he was kind of old and limping, and, but apparently in his younger days, he was very handsome, and basically he would seduce women for the KGB. And this is in, like, KGB books. And, and so, you know, he was definitely working for the KGB. And, and it, seemed, it seems he was in this capacity as a kind of honey trap. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they'd film the sex and then they'd have something on the, the woman. Right. Uh, so that was his job. So I met him and I, I did this Radio 4 documentary for the BBC on spying. So I met him and he was, like, the world's worst interviewee. Like, I would ask a question... And people said to me, be careful of this guy, this guy. Like, somebody said to us, this guy is the most dangerous and frightening man I have ever met. Like, be careful of this guy. So by the time I turned up at his house, somewhere in England, I was really kind of quaking. And then he, he opens the door and he's like, you know, old and limping. And, you know, you kind of instinctively feel a little bit sorry for him. This kind of crappy little council house. In a, in a sort of bad town in somewhere in England. And so I started interviewing him, and it was like the worst interview I've ever done because every question that I asked, um, he gave this hour-long reply <laughs> that had, like, nothing to do with the question. And, and, and I remembered um, 
when I was writing the psychopath test, which had come out maybe a year or so earlier, Robert Hare said to me, like, psychopaths make the worst interviewees because an interview is an empathetic process. And so they just blow on and grandstand in their kind of grandiose ways. So I thought, wow, I, I should put my psychopath spotting skills to use here. So I sort of, so I said to him, when you were a kid, um, were you a bully? And he said, yes, yes, I was, a, I, was a, I was a bully. Yes, I used to beat people up and I would hurt them quite badly. He said, uh, like, what I would do is um, I'd get a bag and I'd put bricks in the bag and I'd hide behind the tree and then I'd come out and I'd hit them with the bag. And I said... Um, That's basically the end of the conversation. I think you've... I mean, well, no. <laughs> no, it's not. Because then I said to him, he said, I said, how did that make you feel? And he said, good. And I said, I'm looking, looking back on it now, all these years later, how does it make you feel? And he kind of went, good. Yeah, still good. And I said, so are you the sort of person who doesn't feel empathy? And he said... Uh, he said, I remember he said, you've got to the nub of what a crank I am. Because when a dog dies, I feel incredibly upset and I can't stop crying. But every human being that I've hurt or killed, he said. Yeah. What really stands out to me about The Men Who Stare at Goats is how it's become, this is, a book is over 10 years old, I guess 2004 is when you mm -hmm. publish it. It's become really interesting and relevant again with the conversations about the torture report and about kind of cleaning up the mess that was made during the, the war on terror, for lack of a better word. Because really what you were looking to write this book was trying to understand and explain the path to Abu Ghraib. Yeah, I mean, I, I started writing this book before Abu Ghraib, and... I got on to, like, Fort Bragg, which is where, you know, PSYOPs was based. The people in the Abu Ghraib photographs were all based on, at, at PSYOPs in Fort Bragg. And I, I, I've always felt incredibly lucky. My timing was incredibly lucky. Like, I got onto Fort Bragg just before the Abu Ghraib pictures came out. After that, they just shut down. And uh, um, I was looking for goat lab. Fort Bragg was where they would kill the goats just by staring at them. Uh, but anyway, after the Abu Ghraib pictures came out, I got really curious to see whether there was any kind of line, you know, any kind mm. of path that begins. Because what you would hear, like, time and time again, is so interesting. You'd hear this at Waco, and you would hear it to a smaller extent at Ruby Ridge, and at Abu Ghraib and at Guantanamo Bay. Like, every time the U.S. military had people, like, encircled it would become like a kind of experimental lab to try stuff out. Uh, so at Ruby Ridge, I remember Randy Weaver told me that at Ruby Ridge, I'm sure people can remember, it was a family of white separatists and the mother and the son were killed by the, by, by the FBI. Um, and then a siege started. And they had, they had all these kind of weird experiments going on. They had this robot that they'd never used before, like going up to the door. And then a couple of years later at Waco, they were blasting music, like these boots are made for walking. And one of these days, these boots are going to walk all and over And Nancy you. Sinatra would make me want to surrender. Right. And, um, well, it's, hold that thought. Um, so... So they tried that out, and then they bought in, they were trying out subliminal sounds. They were going to try and, like, lace 
silent sounds underneath the music were, you know, surrender. This is the voice of God, surrender. And they were like talking to this, this expert in silent sounds called Oliver Lurie. I, I have no idea whether that, whether they actually did try that, but, but I know that they, they tried to try it. Um, and, uh, and then at Guantanamo, the same thing would happen. You know, they had, they would get these, these, these guys, uh, this guy interviewed from Guantanamo called Jamal Al-Harith, and they would put him in a room and they would play him. They would just put him in a room with a ghetto blaster and play him an all girls cover band doing Fleetwood Mac songs. <laughs> uh, and they'd, and they'd just sit there. And, and he'd listen, and then, the, and then they'd turn over the tape. I mean, what the fuck was that all about? I said to Jamal, like, what was that all about? I said, were they trying to lie? Were they being nice? <laughs> and he was like, this was Guantanamo Bay. And, and we don't know. I mean, Jamal didn't know. I don't know. But, they, but that happened. And they weren't blasting it. They were playing it at like a normal, normal volume. Nice level, like, oh, this is pleasant. Yeah, yeah we just... know that blasting stuff was happening. Obviously, everybody knows that now. That was happening in Al Qaim. Uh, this Newsweek journalist called Adam Piore was told by a PSYOPs person to go over there, look, look what's happening inside that shipping container. And inside the shipping container, they were blasting Metallica into Sandman while flashing a strobe light at this guy inside the shipping container container. Uh, I saw a photograph of the guy later on, and I say in the Menestoic Goats mm-hmm. that he's crying so hard, he's screaming so hard, it almost looks as if he's laughing. And the reason why I say that is because of your point about Nancy Sinatra. Mm-hmm. Some sort of pseudo-conspiracy theorists, but this may not be a conspiracy theory, say that, um, that embedded in these experimental techniques is a sort of humor. So if it comes out... Uh, Everybody thinks it's funny. And when people think it's funny, nobody wants to... Everybody loves funny. So like, nobody wants to think, oh, my God, maybe it's horrific. Um, because everybody likes the funny thing. So, and that happened with Barney the Purple Dinosaur. So um, Adam Piori, who, who... I really hope I'm not over-talking here. I'm just remembering <laughs> all of this stuff. Uh, so Adam Piori phoned up Newsweek and said that the weirdest things just happened. This is before... Crucially, I think this is before... Uh, Abu Ghraib, when people thought that torture was still funny. Uh, he said they're blasting Metallica. And Newsweek said to him, get a complete playlist. So he, st- <laughs> <laughs> so he started phoning people up, and, and one of the songs was Barney, the I Love You song, Barney the Purple Dinosaur. And it was hilarious. Honestly, before Abu Ghraib, it, when you, if you go back and look at the cuttings, the big torture story in Iraq was Adam Peori's story about blasting Barney the Purple Dinosaur, and everybody thought it was funny. Um, in, in both my book, The Minister at Goats, and also in the movie of The Minister at Goats, there's a clip of Katie Couric laughing about it, saying, you know, oh, I, I, I'm a pair, you know, Katie Couric is. Uh, and then they cut to Al Roker, and he makes a joke about it. If Barney doesn't work, then they switch to the Teletubbies, and then that crushes them like a bug. And everybody thought it was funny, and so they got away with torture because it was a funny story. Well, I, I tell this story all the time, and you actually talk about it in your book of MK Ultra, which... Audiences now find it hilarious that we were dousing people with LSD and trying to see what happened. And even before that, it started with pot to try right. to see if pot would be a way to make people loosen up for interrogation. 
And I jokingly, I, even I jokingly say, well, you know, they found it didn't work, but their snack bill was really high. And ha, ha, ha. <laughs> right. But MKUltra yes. is one of the most ominous programs. I mean, one of the most horrific with the body counts and just. Yeah. And, well, I spent time with Eric Olson, whose mm. father is, is, was Frank Olson, um, who was right at the heart of MKUltra because in 1953, um, November yep. 1953, funny, I remember the month from not the year, uh, Frank Olson falls or jumps from a hotel called the Statler Hotel in um, New York City, mm-hmm. which is now, it's opposite Madison Square Gardens. I walk past it a lot, and I always think of Frank Olson falling or jumping. Uh, and nobody knew anything for, for 20 years. And Frank's son, Eric, grew up just saying, what happened? What happened in that hotel room? What happened to my father? Uh, and his mother would get really annoyed and say, stop asking. You know, you're never going to know what happened in that hotel room. And poor Eric has spent his life trying to find out what happened in that hotel room because he, does, he doesn't think his father fell or jumped. He thinks his father was pushed. And in 1974, it comes out that he was a victim of MKUltra. And this was the first time anybody had ever heard of MKUltra uh, and that he'd been given Sidney Gottlieb, this spook, who was also in charge of the psychic spies at Fort Meade, uh, put LSD in Frank Olsen's Quantro. And this is the official, this is the official story. Put LSD in Frank Olsen's Quantro. He had a bad trip. He went to New York to see a psychiatrist with two handlers from the CIA and fell or jumped out of the window. So that's the official story. Eric Olsen, his son, is convinced after spending literally his lifetime trying to work out what happened to his father, is convinced that none of that's true. They wanted to present this funny story, just like Barney, and the real story is that his father was involved in this other program called Artichoke, and Artichoke was all about interrogating people to the extent that they might die that they would like give them heroin and then they'd get them hooked on heroin and then they'd make them do cold turkey and Eric's convinced that his father was part of Artichoke and he had a crisis of conscience and he was going to spill the beans about it so they made up the whole MK Ultra story and then took him to New York and, and murdered him uh, and I have, I have no idea what, which of those two stories is true. I, th- I would say that those two stories are pretty much as plausible as each other. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the official ha-ha story for MKUltra is even more than that, is that Sidney Gottlieb's team actually started by experimenting on drug addicts about LSD, which, if you have any science background whatsoever, you know, that's not a very good control group. Right. right? If you have recovering drug addicts and you're giving them LSD to try to see what it does to them, that doesn't give you information. Right. When it came out, when, when MK Ultra first came out in the Washington Post in 1974, Sidney Gottlieb, like people would say to him, well, give us your papers. You know, we want everything you have on MK Ultra." And he said, oh, no, I destroyed all the papers because as a keen environmentalist, I was conscious of paper overflow. Right. So, you know, some, something went on. You know, and I always think MKUltra is the thing that, you know, that's a real-life conspiracy. Right. That, well, that, that's true. And I think as a historian, we, get, we get look back and, and we look at it now and say, why are these people so ridiculous? Mm. But the, the ridiculousness comes from a fact that people were terrified at the time. And I think you can make that same analogy to what happens in the war on terror. 
in Abu Ghraib, not to justify it, not to excuse it, to explain it to a degree. Because in Korea, American POWs were being brought in front of video cameras and making statements they never would have before. And this is where the Manchurian candidate idea comes from. And so the people truly thought there was a mind control gap. Like later on, the missile gap and the bomber gap, truly a mind control gap. And so MKUltra was an attempt to try to close that mind control gap with the Soviets. Like, if they're doing it, we have to do it also. Right. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, Eric, uh, Eric Olsen said, going back to that hide-the-dark story behind a funny story, uh, I always remember one thing Eric said was the other thing that they do, he said, is that they hide... They say it was a failure. Sidney Gottlieb... I mean, Sidney Gottlieb has to be one of the most incredible people in human history. He not only... In, certainly in modern American military history, he not only um, was in charge of the psychic spies at Fort Meade, and he wasn't only in charge of um, MKUltra. He also went to Cuba to try and put a bomb in Castro's cigar, and he tried to poison Castro's wetsuit. There's, Am there's, I remembering this right? There's 600 times the CIA tried to kill Castro, according to the Cubans. Everything from botulism toxin in his wetsuit to uh, putting thallium salts in his shoes so that his beard would fall out. And that he would not be seen as, as a macho if he didn't have his beard and the people of Cuba wouldn't follow him anymore. Uh, and yeah. Sidney Gottlieb was in charge of, of all of that? Yeah, so all the, it's, it's Operation all, Mongoose. Which it's I all do. this one guy, Sidney Yeah, Gottlieb. all this one guy. And as Eric Olsen pointed out, uh, the story with all of these, he said it was all a failure. It was all a funny failure. And Eric said to me one time, I'll never forget this, uh, he said in a success-obsessed country like America, where is the best place to hide success under the rock of failure. I mean, yeah, there, there's... The because nobody would think you would do it. Right, because intelligence stories usually only end up becoming public if there are failures. Uh, yeah. When there are successes, the, the sources and methods that you have to protect. And so you have these big failures that you can't cover up, 9-11, Pearl Harbor. But if you want to cover up a true success story, having some kind of wacky conspiracy theory that's wackier the better... Uh, and if you want to come to the conspiracy talk later on, we can chat about oh, this. Oh, yeah, we're doing another talk yeah. at 5.30. Yeah, about, but the, the, the... About conspiracies. And please do come. It's going to be a good... I think it's really interesting because it's about, like, how 90s conspiracy theories live on today and how they've kind of... There's a big resurgence to them and they become more mainstream and which are true and what are the new ones. It's going to be really interesting. Well, the UFO conspiracy, Area 51, is one of the best of all time where the CIA was going to clamp it down and then said, hmm, if people yeah. think they're seeing aliens... They're not thinking that they're seeing the U-2 spy plane or the SR-71 or the B-2. So they said, let's kind of push this conspiracy as much as we possibly can. That's right. What was the name of the guy who was, like, in charge? There are, there are a couple, so there's no one guy. But this yeah. is Alan Dulles is really the person that, that thought of this idea. And who said, was the head of the CIA. Right, head of the CIA who made 1950, it. 1950, He was Eisenhower's CIA chief. Right. And basically he was the one that really, in your book, you talk about the fact that he understood the mind is, like, the next place Mm. that warfare would take place and intelligence would take place. That's right. By the way, um, um, I met one person who met Sidney Gottlieb, and he said that the one, the one tidbit I remember from that meeting was that Sidney Gottlieb, it was a sunny day, and Sidney Gottlieb sat with his back against the window so the other guy would be the one with the light in his eyes. 
I'm surprised he sat in a room with windows at all. Some of these ex-spooks are pretty <laughs> suspicious about things. By the way, are we allowed, are we allowed to open this up for questions? Oh, absolutely. I was about to say, I have one last question, and we're going to open it up to questions. There's two microphones on each side. If you have a question you want to ask either of us, please do that. So let me ask you the question. This is a kind of counterfactual history. The people in the book make it seem ridiculous because the people themselves are ridiculous. And these are, these are personalities that you just meet them and you're like, this guy's bonkers. Does it add, would it add to the legitimacy of the mission overall, knowing what we know about the Cold War and how afraid people were, if these people were more normal? I know it's kind of a thought-provoking, waxing philosophic question, but it, it's very easy to make this satirical or farcical because the people are so out there. They're so easy to chuckle at. Right. Can we understand the mission a little better and say, all right, look, you had to do everything you possibly could at the time to try to fight the Russians. If the people weren't so crazy, would this be a little more legitimate, a little less satirical? Hmm. I think, well, I mean, what popped into my mind as you were saying that is I, eventually I found at least some of them not ridiculous, but sinister, sort of frightening. Okay. Um, there was one guy in the book who, after my book came out, went on Art Bell and said that I'd faked it all, like I'd never met him. Hmm. And then immediately emailed me and said, oh, I just went on, I'd forgotten that I met you, and I just went on Art Bell and said that we hadn't met. And I'm really sorry, I'd totally forgotten that you came to my house. <laughs> so plausible deniability, right? To, right? And I filmed it. Like, I made a documentary series to go with the book, Minister at Goat. So everything that I did while I was researching that book is all on film. So there's film of me at his house meeting him. Right. And I thought, that is so, you know, you're a colonel. Like, be a bit, like, behave a bit better than that. Well, if he was a colonel and behaved a little bit better, he probably wouldn't be in a unit. Right. That was staring at goats trying to kill them with their mind bullets. <laughs> yeah. So if there are any questions, please, you can come to the mic. If not, we will keep chatting. Oh, here we go. Hi. This is, uh, this is the great Carrie Poppy, who I don't know if any of you know her, her brilliant podcast, Oh No, Ross and Carrie. Oh, thank you. Um, Carrie's just spent the last year or so infiltrating Scientology. Scientology, that's right. Yeah, yeah um, uh, similarly, I was just thinking, you were saying that you uh, feel you'd always, you would be a good spy. I've always felt that way, too, um, and we do similar work. I do immersive journalism also. Uh, but when I think about my work and the kind of person it takes to do my work, I think uh, compassion is really important, that being a good journalist means having empathy and understanding uh, everyone's point of view on all sides of the story. And listening to you guys talk about spies, I'm thinking, oh, you know what, that requires a certain level of ruthlessness I mm -hmm. might not have. And I'm wondering if that makes you second guess whether you'd be a good spy. That's interesting. And you know, the, I think the reason why... Um the Minister at Goats is probably my, my least favorite of my books is because it's probably the least empathetic book. I think I was, I, I was so kind of astonished by what I was finding out. It, it's, it's kind of history. It's, it's, I mean, I still write it in my sort of funny, silly way, but it was much more a book about fact-finding than it was about trying to get inside the heads of the people and see the world through their eyes and be empathetic and compassionate. And... and there's, there's a kind of element of that in the book. Um, and we sort of talked about it a little bit today about how, you know, they were trying to do wonderful things. I mean, and in answer to one of your first questions, the reason why they wanted to talk to me 
most of them was because they were proud of what they did. Yeah. They were trying to find kinder ways of waging war. Uh, and they were kind of proud of that, and rightly so. And, and the military, I guess, should be trying out this weird shit. Like, you know, that's what the military should be doing. Is Yeah, if you're fighting fair, then you're doing it wrong. I mean, you need to find every possible way to, yeah. to defeat your own. And, you know, positive, you know, many, many positive things have come from the military. The, the high-visibility jacket came from the military study because of out-of-the-box thinking. But, but, um, but, yeah, I agree. I think, you know, empathy and compassion, and the older I get, I mean, in my book about public shaming that I just brought out, that's entirely a kind of exercise in being empathetic about people whose social media destroyed. But The Minister of Goats, funnily enough, is a slightly more kind of brittle book than, than that. I, I think because it was all about, because it was a slightly different mission. The mission was to try and find out what the fuck was going on. Let me push back a little bit, actually. I think you need to be ruthlessly empathetic if you're going to be an effective intelligence officer. You need to understand what makes someone tick. You need to get inside their heads. You need to figure out what is going to make them do what they shouldn't be doing, what they naturally are adverse to, essentially committing treason against their own country. So you need to get inside and figure out what makes this person tick. Are they someone that I can influence for money or influence ideologically? Or can I placate their ego and t talk them up and make them think that they actually should be much higher than they actually are? You can't do that if you're not empathetic, if you're not really understanding what makes a person do things. And then the ruthlessness kicks in, because you're going to exploit that for everything it's worth. So it's not like you want to... But the ruthlessness to is, the main, yeah. is the main driving force. Right, right, but you can't do it if you're not empathetic. It's, it's the, people try, right? People wash out of the Department of Operations, Director of Operations and CIA because they can't figure out what makes somebody tick because they're unable to get inside people's heads. And that's where that empathetic part comes into play. So, yes, sir. Thank you. I enjoyed your, uh, your discussion. Um, with regard to the intelligence community and thinking that these people are intelligent, perhaps, is there any credence to is there a certain entry-level test involving IQ that allows one to be part of the intelligence community or not? And secondly, with that in mind, who's... Vince, I'm hoping that you... Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so the specifics are classified, and I don't mean... I'm not saying that just to be kind of douchey about it. Um, but when you're, when you're going to any kind of special operations, there's a battery of tests. For instance, I took the one for special forces when I was in the Army. And you're taking question, tests that with questions like, what in the world are they asking me? You know, would you rather kill your mom or your dad? Why? And you're like, what? Wait, neither. I mean, can I say neither? Is there none of the above? And there isn't. Like, they're trying to kind of see how you tick. There are, uh, IQ tests are less used because you need, if you're even going to be sniffed at by most intelligence agencies, you have to have an academic background that shows that you're pretty intelligent already. Um, for every job at CIA, there's about a thousand or more applicants. So they have the pick of the litter, and in most cases, they're looking for people that have a pretty distinguished academic background. You go beyond that, you're taking polygraphs, you're doing other things that are necessary to get clearances. Again, I can only get into some of that, but you are going to be put on the box, the polygraph. Um, they're, they're, they're pretty good at figuring it out. They're not always perfect, because every so often you'll get an Aldrich Ames, or you'll get a Rick, uh, Rob, uh, Bob Hansen, or you'll get somebody who is a traitor, who they can't figure out through this huge battery of tests. But for the most part, they're not bad. When you see stuff like Abu Ghraib, 
you know, where these people go off the rails. These were essentially non-trained National Guard people who had come in. And when you look at I mean, not to excuse their actions, because their actions are inexcusable, but every MP I've ever talked to, like a professional Army MP who's gone through full-fledged or active Army guy says, none of us would ever, ever operate like this. Not just because of Geneva Convention, just because it doesn't work. It's just it's not part of the training. And so you don't want somebody who's a little bonkers. You want somebody who's pretty level-headed, who's going to understand how the world works. I do, I do interviews all the time about the feasibility of Hollywood movies. And one of the last big movies that came out was The Mission Impossible. It came out a couple years ago, if you remember Tom Cruise hanging from the plane. And in an interview with Vanity Fair, and they're like, is that accurate? I'm like, that person would be fired the minute they, they stand up the ground because millions of dollars of training went into getting somebody like Ethan Hunt ready for these missions. And taking these ridiculous risks are just not what they're looking You're not looking for psychopaths. You're not looking for people who are so crazy that they're, I mean, if anyone's watched Homeland, another good example where Claire Danes' character in the second to last season was the chief of station in Islamabad, right? She's the highest ranking intelligence officer in Pakistan, and she is diagnosed bipolar. Never, ever, ever, ever in the real world would you see that happen. Because you, you want people that are willing to take risks, but very calculated risks. And I think you actually run a lot of people who talk about that book. These are calculated risks based on the time period you're dealing yeah. with. Yeah. I remember, for the next question, I remember when I, when I was doing that, one of my psychopath spotting courses, um, there was somebody, there was a military recruiter there, and I said, so do psychopaths make good military people? And he said, no, we don't want psychopaths in the military because... They make terrible team players. They destabilize a unit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm taking over your... Oh. Uh, hi. Hi. Oh, I'm really short. We can still hear you. My name is Sloan Trugman, um, and I spent the past year, year and a quarter, infiltrating the DOD and the intelligence community on the technological side. So For what purpose? Uh, for the NGO nonprofit and book I'm writing right now. I deal with information and the democratization of information. So it's not just human, so human intelligence, what we're talking about here. Um, I deal with the technological intelligence gathering. So, yeah, um, poly and high academia is definitely important when you're applying, but there's so much more that goes into it. Um, and also so much more that deals with the post-mid-last century of intelligence gathering, which is spies as we know it. So question for you, because I kept hearing, I guess, themes and something that I think about as well is, it's, I don't believe the empathy note, it's about essence. And in the role of the analyst, so we're dealing with human on your guys' side, how do we get into the role of the analyst, the person that does put the case files together? In the future of intelligence, it's going to be dealing not only with this mid-last century of person-to-person, spy-to-spy, so how do you see a future? Um, not from the cross-section that you guys expert in, but this next generation. You've got to say that one, Vince. Yeah, no, I, I, and I think you're overstating the changes that are taking place. I think that the technology is key here, of course, as you know, that there are truly dramatic technological changes happening in the world of intelligence. But at its core, it hasn't changed in 10,000 years. All right, the idea of convincing somebody to give you information that they shouldn't otherwise we joke, we joke somewhat in the spy museum that espionage is the second oldest profession. And some others joke that it's less ethical than the first. Um, technology has made it a different, made it different to spy. Uh, I, I, I see what you're getting at. And, and, and you're, you know, yes. Uh, not just 
this technology, but um, so when you when you are gathering, so if you are doing spy to spy, so what are modern psychological psychological developments that are no longer in the 50s, 60s, and 70s that can play in so vipassana values, getting to the essence, looking at more from a, a outlier perspective of intelligence gathering to no, uh, not empathy. It's like the opposite of empathy. Yeah, I, I think there's an all of the above philosophy here. I know analysts who are hardcore, just the facts, ma'am types. Uh, a lot of the military analysts are just hunkering down and saying, how good are their tanks? How good are their aircraft? But leadership analysis, which is another key component, uh, she's got a follow-up. Here we go. What? Sorry, something that I didn't uh, put into this is also enterprise influence. So the role of the fifth estate, like networks. So Google uh, collection of information, trails, and kind of the uh, softwareing that the FBI and the CIA to do full profiling. So that kind of is the second tier. Sorry. Yeah. Again, I think it's just a different ball game with the same thing. And 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 you can really that's a question for tomorrow. And I'm not trying to push you off. There's a great tech and privacy panel where you're going to get me and uh, Jason Leopold and Ted Lieu and John McAfee who invented essentially the the world of virus software, antivirus software. Um, it's a little inside baseball, probably, for this conversation, but I'm not blowing it off. We'll deal with it for sure. Let's go right here. Not sure how to formulate this. Um, I have a spy network in mind that's posing the greatest danger to the United States and the Western world. Uh, it's it's not one of these big state actors because we usually see them coming. Uh, it, it tends to be more the conglomeration of. Um, state actors operating with inside threats. And I'm not going to bash Snowden here because I'm very much on the middle ground when it comes to Edward Snowden. But the real damage can be done with somebody who we trust and who has access to information and decides to either work with or release information to somebody working for a foreign power. And my answer is Trump. Or Trump. I, I, I yeah. uh, was going to say the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, I... I I think it's it's certainly naive to not to understate the power and the potential danger of Islamic fundamentalism or whatever you want to call it. I think the fact that um, we have a very good counterintelligence operation here in the United States, it's very difficult to work your way in. The FBI is very good at this. Um, just shows, you know, you get these. The, the DNC hack actually shows how weak SVR is how weak the Russians are. Uh, their last real attempt at infiltrating sleeper agents into the U.S. community was the Russian 10 that were arrested back in 2010. If you're from New York, these were 10 Russians led by Anna Chapman, if you remember her. A lot of the guys here might, uh, but she was in Maxim and all over the place. Uh, Anna Chapman and others who tried to infiltrate into the New York real estate market, which on its face made sense, right? This is 2010. 2008, you have the financial collapse. What are the indicators that are the American economy is rebounding? It's going to be the New York real estate market. Mm -hmm. But they were trying to work their way up into the highest levels of New York real estate. They basically got like bottom middle, middle management. They were dealing with people who were nowhere near the level. She didn't seduce Trump somehow. Right. This is this gorgeous redhead from Russia that didn't seduce. I mean, that's how bad they were. Right. Um, and, and they were all rounded up. The FBI had been watching them for a year before they were arrested. That's how terrible they were at this job. And that really just shows how good CIA is, counterintelligence, but also how much other countries have to do to catch up. Huh. 
Yeah. Just by weird coincidence, the other day I met the head of Douglas Elliman, who's like New York's biggest real, realtor, a guy called Howard Lauber. Was he involved in this? So he never he kind of targeted. Well, sure, he was targeted, but they never got near him. Mm. They never I got to the levels. Him. Was that? Well, yeah, but they, this is this is an attempt in many cases of doing the old-fashioned honey trap, huh. where these were. That's how I got access. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Works for some, not for others. Anna Chapman unfortunately yeah. didn't pull her way off. No, look, I, you're always, there, there's a pendulum in the world of intelligence. There are some times where offensive, actual intelligence operations have the power. Sometimes that's technologically feasible when you have a development like the SR-71 or early drones. There are other times when counterintelligence has the advantage, when that technology makes it very difficult to spy. This is true in the Soviet Union at the very beginning of the Cold War. Almost impossible for us to infiltrate agents into the Soviet Union. Now with cyber capabilities, the offensive cyber operations are, are a step ahead of cyber defense. So you have things like the DNC hack. You have the OPM hack, where China hacked 30 million records from OPM. They know everything they want to know about me, because my record was one of them. And if you've done an SF-86, which is the form you fill out for clearance, it's pretty in-depth. Well, the Chinese government knows stuff about me that my family doesn't know about me. It's just life. We're doing the same to them. Uh, we're just not advertising it as much as they are. Uh, so it's going to be an interesting back and forth coming up in the next couple of years. Should we take this? Yeah, we can do this one, and you'll be the last, because I think there's another panel trying to come in here. I don't, uh, my yeah. name's Aaron Jansen. I actually work in cyber as well. Um, the OPM breach is a really significant yeah. challenge, right? Anybody that has had their fingerprints taken really can't fly into uh, China anymore. I mean, they probably know who your dog was or your first grade teacher was, right? And in this sort of a situation that we find ourselves in, especially now with the Internet, if you go back a long way to, uh, you know, um, uh, folks like Daniel Ellsberg, mm -hmm. right, before the, uh, before the Internet, you know, all the way back to, um, uh, you know, your, uh, your, your favorite, um, uh, uh, your favorite uh, traders, right? The challenge is that when I see this, a lot of those individuals are actually trying to do this for both personal gain or to try to help another country. We present so much of our personal information on the Internet. So my question is, when you actually look at how much the, uh, the government might be taking or how much information the uh, uh, China might be taking, and you compare that, do you think we actually are more at risk from ourselves or more at risk from government surveillance? We put so much of our own information online, just basically the, our, the, the conversation tomorrow about privacy versus technology. I'm, I'm ready and willing to mention the fact that most of us give away all our privacy ourselves. Right. Uh, there's very little, if you go on Twitter or Facebook or any of these things, there's very little that I can't do. And I'm not I'm not a cyber sleuth. There's very little I can't do. If I know your Twitter feed and your Facebook and I know a little bit about you, then I can't figure out a way to get in. Yeah, I specialize yeah. in social engineering, right? Yeah. Which is exactly what you're talking about. So when we look at people like, um, we look at WikiLeaks, right? We look at other individuals, Bradley Manning, those sorts of people that are actually presenting that information. You said you were a little talking about, but isn't that usually always the case? And the big question is, could we crowdsource some people together saying this is unacceptable? Also, kind of, how does it dovetail into us indicting Chinese, um, uh, you know, as I said, I do cyber a lot. We've identified some people right. that were responsible for OPM and other things. How do we take corrective action? Corrective action is deterrence, right. or is offensive cyber, is making them hurt for doing the same thing to us. Um, kind of around your point, what point I want to bring up, and then I think we need to move on, is when John Walker, who was a famous American trader who passed along 1.4-ish million documents to the Soviets, he had to create a spy ring to do it. He had to recruit his brother, he had to recruit his son, his neighbor, and it took them months 
to steal 1.4 million naval documents to pass along to the Soviet Maybe in years. Ed, yeah, Minox camera taking it one by one. Edward Snowden did it with a jump drive, right, and just walked right out the door. And so the ability to steal information is way easier today than it has ever been before. Uh, but that's true for us also, right? I mean, we, we still are the country, the only country on earth that has used a cyber operation to actually create physical damage, and that's Stuxnet. Absolutely. And, and, and that's going to be the wave of the future. Um, and the good news is that we're very good at it. Um, and you don't see it in the newspaper all the time because, again, we don't always uh, publicize our successes. Um, our failures get publicized, like the OPM hack, uh, but not always the stuff that we're doing to try to retaliate for that. Sure. But that's, you have to weigh the two. I mean, that's the, the one thing you, you talk about in this case is when you have massive attacks against the United States, I'm going to sound such like a government shill right now, when you, have massive, when you allow massive attacks in the United States, whether it's a 9-11 or if it's an Orlando or something like that, people get very, very afraid. And people make shitty decisions when they're afraid. Look at the Patriot Act, right? So you have this back-and-forth pendulum to when you have opportunities, when people are afraid, they're going to make bad decisions. You have to make that trade-off. You have to say, how can we prevent these kind of attacks? Because then we can actually have a rational conversation about what is the fine line between openness in transparency and security. What is that line? Because when we're terrified, the line goes way to the security side, right? Let's spy on every Muslim. There was a conversation after 9-11 of rounding up Muslim Americans and putting them in internment camps. It wasn't a very long conversation, but it was a conversation. And then you get a time when there's been 15 years since a major attack, all right? Now, Orlando was a minor attack. Anyone who died in Orlando or anything, it was not another 9-11. And so you have that pendulum swing all the way over to the other side. And also not necessarily an Islamic motivated right. attack. Also not necessarily ISIS motivated. It could be, we don't know yet, but who knows. And so the pendulum swings to the other side where people are saying, we need to know everything. The government needs to be completely transparent. And it's because we're making decisions based on the time and not logic. And there needs to be this happy medium in the middle. And... How many, let, me, let me take an informal poll. How many of you know cyber well enough to make a rational decision for policy moving forward? All right. Other than the two of you, I don't want any of you making decisions for me. Sorry. I, I'm being dead serious. Having a, I mean, I, that's, that's the real problem. And that this goes back to the founding of the country. Alexander Ham We're in the Hamilton room right now. Alexander Hamilton arguing against average everyday Americans making decisions based on foreign policy. Right? That's why the original Constitution was designed the way that it was. Where that this was one of my favorite songs as well. In the, Wait, exactly, right? Yeah. Now everyone learns history through musicals. It's awesome, right? Where the Senate wasn't voted on by popular vote because the Senate was in charge of foreign policy. And no one wanted to trust the average American with making foreign policy decisions. Now, we're a little more informed today, but the American election, maybe not, right? I mean, I, I, look, I'm not a Trump supporter, as he figured out at this point, but the guy running for president doesn't know anything about foreign policy, and that's problematic. Um, as much as you don't like Mitt Romney or John McCain, they certainly understood foreign policy. Um, and that, that's, that may be what Hamilton was warning us against you know, 240 years ago. But don't do him down too much. He's a, he, he makes an outstanding golf course. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. I, I'm yes. very impressed at how literal. How Hamilton spine. makes an. Yeah, Alexander <laughs> Hamilton makes an outstanding golf course. Um, yeah. 
It's the very spy literate crowd. I'm Look, I love it. I love it. That's the great thing in the world. So again, John will be on several panels again. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.